Good morning, listeners, and welcome to this week's edition of News from the Drug Warfront, brought to you by Karma and The Connection. In this NADOC week, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording on Ngunnawal country and to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and a big shout out to any Indigenous people who are listening to News from the Drug Warfront today. Good morning, Marion. Good morning, David, and hello, listeners, and how are we all this morning? Given that it wasn't minus five, which is what I was expecting just because it's radio week. (laughs) It's certainly very windy. It is. Okay, so coming up in today's show, we'll be looking at uh, Pharmacy Guild's endorsement (laughs) of the rollout of the National Take-Home Naloxone Program. And we'll be updating you over the next few months about how this will impact Karma's Take-Home Naloxone Program, which has been running for these past 10 years. Uh, We'll also be looking at novel psychoactive substances, which are now being found in the Australian recreational drug market and the potential dangers that these pose to users. Mm, We reported on that last week too, didn't Mm. we? Yeah, that was in New Zealand. From New South Wales? No, New Zealand it was. New Zealand, that's right, but Mm. the potential for it to be in Australia, yeah. Yeah. Um, We'll also be reporting on Australia's recent ranking as one of the highest per capita uses of crystal methamphetamine. That's intriguing, isn't it? And overseas, we'll be looking at the safe injecting rooms, which will soon be opening in California after an act of um, parliament there. A new government in Colombia, uh, which has always been well well known as a uh, one of the major producers of cocaine and the home of many, many cartels. Indeed. Uh, also, the military government in Myanmar burning half a billion dollars worth of confiscated illicit drugs. I bet they is, didn't weigh at all, though. Yeah, a drop <laughs> in the ocean, really. And the censorship of the investigative journal Rappler by the allegedly corrupt Filipino government. Yeah, and it's a new one, too. So we're kind of hoping, we're hoping that we would be getting something different, but sounds like same. Day, different faces, yeah? Yeah. So before we go any further, we're going to kick off with a song, and um, this is They Might Be Giants with Birdhouse in Your Soul. That was They Might Be Giants with Birdhouse in Your Soul. You're listening to News from the Drug Warfront, brought to you by Karma and the Connection here on People Powered Radio 2XFM 98.3. Um, so, news from the drug war front reports on news stories that are relevant to illicit and recreational drug users from Australia and around the world. Many of the articles featured in this program come from other sources, including the mainstream media, and as such, the contents of this program and the podcast may not necessarily reflect the views and or policies of Karma and the Connection and its staff and volunteers. Karma and the Connection focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. We seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic health care. Karma exists to promote the health and human rights of people who use drugs and people who use drug treatment services. Mm. Karma and The Connection provide a wide range of services, as most uh, regular listeners will know, like advocacy, peer treatment support, education, art therapy, support groups, mentoring and referrals. Above all, Karma and The Connection are harm reduction services. Uh, Karma and the Connection are co-located in the Belconnen Churches Centre at Shop 17, 
Level 1, 54 Benjamin Way. The drop-in hours are 10am to 4pm Monday to Friday. Contact can be made on 6253 3643 or by emailing karma at info at karma.org.au, all one line. Karma can assist people with a wide range of issues, including advice and advocacy around opioid maintenance treatment, accessing and being paid to treat your hepatitis C, a program in conjunction with Hep ACT, and the Reach, Teach, Treat, Thrive program, helping people to access detox, re- detox rehab and other alcohol treat- and other drug treatment uh, services, a walk-in health centre, Clinic with a doctor and nurse from 10am to 2pm every Wednesday in partnership with Directions. No appointment is necessary. Peer education workshops including opioid overdose management training incorporating take-home naloxone and The Fix, which is a series of one-hour paid workshops that aim to educate people in all aspects of harm reduction. Providing assistance and advocacy for people who are experiencing social issues or having trouble navigating social services, and most people do, let alone drug users who face the discrimination that's associated with their personal behaviour. The Connections Harm Reduction Peer Education Program, Muragadi, is for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. If you're having problems associated with uh, your drug use or alcohol, tobacco use, and don't know where to get help, or even if you just want to have a chat about your use with someone who can empathise with your experience and who won't judge you for it, give Karma a call. That number's 62533643. Again, if we're unable to help you, then we'll try to find someone who can. And uh, this after- oh, today, Connection staff will be out in Woden um, doing a special NADOC barbecue uh, with the ACT Council of Social Services. Oh, good. Whereabouts in Woden? Uh, you know? This is in the shopping square, well, next to the shopping square, near the library. Oh, okay. I gather. I don't- yep. Good upon them. Okay. And tomorrow we have naloxone training at. Ainsley Village, there are still a few places left, so if you live in the village or even if you spend a lot of time there and you want to get your hands on some life-saving naloxone and information that could save yours or someone else's life, uh, give Karma a call on 6253 or email info at karma.org.au to book your place. And places are limited, so bookings are essential if you don't want to miss out. Um, they're paid workshops still, aren't Absolutely, they? Absolutely, yep. yep. So yep. you get paid for attending and you get your naloxone to mm-hmm. take home. And you get it, So and it's got an instruction kit with it, by the yep. way. So even if you don't do the course, you can still give naloxone to somebody that you know and or someone you know that will need it or has needed it in the past because yep. that's really prevalent all mm-hmm. over the place. Yep. We know people are dying at it. Irrational rate. There's no need for people to die from die from opioid overdose. So naloxone is the best way. All it does is stop opioid overdose. It does nothing else. No harmful side effects. Just stops people dying from an overdose. So get onto it. Get into it. What's the theme for this week for NADOC? Stand up. Get up. Show up. Yeah, we'll do yep. the same with naloxone, mm-hmm. hey? That's yep. NADOC and us. Okay, so the first story is a national story. 
naloxone program will save lives. Now, this is from the pharmacists, a welcome roll-up from the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia, the National Tribune, from the 30th of the 6th, 2022. This is a great relief, I might add. The article starts, The Pharmaceutical Society of Australia, the PSA, welcomes the national rollout of take-home naloxone, that's THN program, which allows pharmacists to provide free naloxone from the 1st of July. Naloxone rapidly reverses the effects of an opioid overdose or adverse reaction and can be administered by injection or via a nasal spray. We locally use the nasal spray largely, but the uh, injectable stuff is available still. Under the national program, naloxone will be available across Australia for free and without a prescription to anyone who may experience or witness an opioid overdose or an adverse reaction. The PSA national president, Dr Fai Sim, says that pharmacists will be key to a successful rollout because of their accessibility and expertise. She said in a media statement, naloxone saves lives. During the pilot, three lives were saved each day, but with wider access, we expect to see an even, great, even greater impact. As our most accessible healthcare professionals, community pharmacists will play a critical role in ensuring that everyday Australians can access this life-saving medicine. The quote goes on, one dose of naloxone previously cost around $40, but from the 1st of July, anyone can walk into their local pharmacy and receive two free doses of naloxone, as well as expert advice from pharmacists about how to administer it. The, lox the naloxone trial showed us that we can reduce the harm by excessive opioid use by making mix medicines like naloxone more accessible and removing cost barriers. Good on you, Dave. I, I reckon that's your trial. They're quoting, really. Um, anyone taking opioids for pain management or caring for someone who does should collect naloxone from their local pharmacist. We can also provide advice about identifying an opioid overdose, which is really important. It goes on. Over recent years, we've seen more cases of illicit party drugs being spiked with acetylfentanyl, which can cause opioid overdose even in small amounts. We are urging young people who use recreational drugs like cocaine to visit their local pharmacy and carry naloxone on a night out. Your pharmacist is there to provide judgment-free expert advice on when and how to use this life-saving drug. It could save your life or the life of a friend. So take-home naloxone will be available through non-pharmacy sites such as alcohol and drug treatment centres and needle syringe programs in New South Wales, South Australia and Western Australia from the 1st of July and in Tasmania, Victoria, Queensland and the ACT from the 1st of November. As always, people can always get free naloxone from Karma and from the And from the doing the training course too. And yeah. from doing the training courses well, the, yeah. as well. No, I look good on the pharmacy, uh, pharmaceutical society. I'm glad they've come out and said that and made themselves available, yep, yep. publicly available. It's a great step. Mm. Really, we've been calling for that even last up to last week. Yeah, yeah, we were saying mm. the McDonald's managers should have naloxone, but you know the pharmacy pharmacists taking that step is a really 
good, big step. Yeah. Because, yeah, they are available. And if you can get them for free from a pharmacist, go do it. But, yeah, if you want to do the training, the training will just give you more expertise and you get paid and for I doing it. I think it's um, it's actually pretty important that particularly people who use yeah. um, opioids or any drugs recreationally, that they learn a bit about overdose and how to manage the Absolutely. risks and, and learn a bit about first aid as well. Indeed. Yep. I think it's a great step. I mean, good for the pharmacists, but the training has more in it than just the use, the provision yeah. mm-hmm. of naloxone. So it's worth doing the training course and getting paid to do it because what you know is infinitely more than what you knew before you went in. That's yeah? right. Every time I go and do that course, dope, I always ask a question and learn something new. And yeah. that's, we can't afford to say I don't know anymore. Yeah. yeah? We've got Absolutely. to learn to handle our lives and the mm. lives of our friends. We've yeah. got to learn to be responsible for our community. Mm. Yeah. And see ourselves as a community, Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so we're going to have some Pixies now, and this song's called Gouge Away. That was the Pixies with Gouge Away. You're listening to News from the Drug Warfront, brought to you by Karma and the Connection here on People Powered Radio 2XFM 98.3. Um, staying in Australia, this is tracking the alarming rise in strange new illicit drugs flooding Australia. This is written by Jennifer Schumann from Monash University Lens and this was published on the 4th of July. Two years ago, in a field of forensic medicine known as toxico-surveillance, a group involving Monash University and Monash Health began taking samples of blood and other fluids from drug overdose patients in emergency departments to see what was there. This was in response to an alarming rise in strange new drugs flooding into the illicit market in Australia. These drugs are mainly made in clandestine factories in China and in, or India, and they're sold online in the first instance. Many of these drugs can kill, especially when taken in combination with other drugs. They're intended to mimic the effects of better-known recreational drugs like ecstasy, amphetamines, LSD, opioids, cannabis and benzodiazepines such as Xanax. Monash University's Associate Professor Jennifer Schumann, who is the head of the Drug Intelligence Unit at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, says, The compounds are often referred to as research chemicals. For example, a lot of the novel synthetic opioids were initially synthesised in the 50s and 60s to investigate potential alternative analgesics, but they never actually progressed to market and now they're being synthesised illegally, end Mm. quote. However, the real investigative beginnings of this story, tracking the rise of, quote, novel psychoactive substances in Australia, starts with a cluster of five deaths in six months in Melbourne in 2016 and 2017. According to the Age newspaper, once the deaths had gone to the Victorian coroner, Quote, the cluster of deaths was uncovered when 20 people were hospitalised in one weekend in January 2017 after taking what police thought was bad ecstasy in a nightclub precinct. One died in front of his girlfriend, another on Christmas Day. End quote. The NPS were 
25C NBOME and 4 fluoroamphetamine, which the users believed were MDMA or magic mushrooms. 25C NBOME is an NBOM type of lab made serotogenic serotonergic, sorry, serotonergic hallucinogen that has been associated with brain damage and death in Australia and overseas. 4-fluoroamphetamine is a lab-made chemical that can mimic amphetamine salts, methamphetamine or MDMA. The state's coroner recommended urgent public drug testing as a result of the deaths. The Emerging Drugs Network Drugs Network of Australia, EDNA, was formed in 2019, comprising emergency physicians, toxicologists and forensic laboratories from most states and territories to conduct toxico-surveillance in hospital emergency departments. Uh, EDNAV started up in 2020 and provides the Victorian part of the network. Victoria has 17 hospitals, regional and metropolitan, in the system. The difference now is that instead of replying largely on user reports in hospitals, that is, patients saying what they took, blood and fluid samples are taken. These are described as, quote, comprehensive biological fluid forensic analysis to identify exposures by Associate Professor Sean Green, an honorary clinical toxicologist at Monash Health, and the project's lead. Associate Professor Green is also medical director of the Victorian Poisons Information Centre, an emergency medical medicine physician and a clinical toxicologist at Austin Health. Analysis of drugs in hospitals up until this point in Australia has been basic, says Associate Professor Schumann. She continues, Clinicians would agree that patients are treated symptomatically for what is wrong with them at the time, but we're looking at a toxico-surveillance approach so we know what's circulating in the community. It may not help the patient in the short term in terms of their recovery from that particular incident, but it does better inform the community and it helps clinicians understand what's around, which may improve treatment in the long term. End of quote. The illicit drug monitoring links in with similar international schemes in a global network of early warning systems. In Europe, these early warning systems have found on average one new substance every week. The ENDAV, or EDNAV, (laughs) has already found many novel psychoactive substances before they've otherwise been detected in Australia, and it's a partnership with the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services, which facilitates rapid dissemination of public health alerts to the community. The EDNAV project has found illicit benzodiazepines, opioids, cathinones, hallucinogens and synthetic cannabinoids, and has highlighted significant differences between what the user reported consuming and actual forensic analysis of their samples. Mm. As a consequence of these discoveries, public health alerts have been issued by EDNAV. All of the recent health alerts about specifically hazardous batches of drugs in Victoria have in fact originated for EDNAV testing, except for an alert in March 2020 on toxic ecstasy pills, which was marked with the United 
Postal Service stamp. Wow. The main message so far is that many recreational drug users don't really know what they're taking. Yo-ho, the pill-testing clinics. Mm. Professor Schumann relates, quote, We've seen cocaine and MDMA that people thought they were taking, but it was actually a substance called PMMA. We've seen many novel benzodiazepines and there are more and more appearing all the time. We've detected novel benzodiazepines that have never been seen in Australia before. I think the biggest concern is that people don't know what they're taking. They're using illicit drugs that they're buying off the internet or from their local dealer without realising what's actually in that pill or powder. We've had cases where people have reported buying a specific drug from the internet, but we've detected multiple novel compounds in that individual's drug that they had no idea they'd taken. They're getting more potent formulations. For example, taking a single pill they think is Xanax or Alprazolam, not realising it's actually a combination of far more potent benzodiazepines. End quote. One of the latest discoveries from the labs is a benzodiazepine derivative called phenazepine, PAM, which despite being banned by several European countries is still available with a prescription or on the black market in Russia and other former Soviet states. For the researchers, it can be a step, step, case of one step forward, two steps back as new drugs come onto the market. Quote, a lot of these illicit manufacturers have expert organi- organic chemicals that chemists that tweak a compound to create a new designer drug that may be structurally similar but far more toxic, says Associate Professor Schumann. There's now more than 1,200 different novel substances that have been reported to the European Early Warning System. It's constantly growing. Time for the news. It is in. National Radio News. Hello, I'm Emily Minnie. More evacuations and warnings have been issued across New South Wales as the Premier urges residents to heed evacuation warnings. There are more than 100 evacuation orders affecting 50,000 people and emergency crews have responded to more than 5,000 calls for help overnight. More heavy rain is forecast for this week and Dominic Perrottet is warning the flood crisis is far from over. Of the 22 flood rescues that occurred overnight, uh, two of those flood rescues occurred in areas where evacuation orders were in place. Please follow those instructions. The federal government has pledged financial relief for nearly two dozen flood-ravaged local government areas across Greater Sydney. The Illawarra, Blue Mountains, Sydney, the Central Coast and parts of the Hunter are among the areas included in the joint government-funded disaster recovery payments. It will include support for property owners assisting in the clean-up effort and loans to small businesses. Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles told Channel 7 it's important to roll out support to affected communities quickly. This part of Sydney is really part of the food bowl of of the Greater Sydney area and and they're being particularly uh, hard hit in relation to what they do in in terms of their primary produce. So we'll be providing support there as well and we obviously stand ready uh, to do more. There are are more requests coming through the the pipeline as this uh, situation unfolds. 
The Prime Minister is set to tour flood-ravaged areas of Sydney when he returns to Australia. Anthony Albanese says he's been briefed on the situation in New South Wales. Mr Albanese has been overseas for a NATO summit, a meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron and a visit to war-torn Ukraine. The Federal Treasurer says he feels for families caught in the current inflationary cycle as the prospect of another interest rate hike looms. The Reserve Bank is tipped to raise the official cash rate by another half a percent to 1.35 percent when it meets today. It would be the third consecutive rate rise since May. Treasurer Jim Chalmers says it's a tough time for a lot of people. Mortgage repayments will take up an even bigger chunk uh, of household budgets, which are already stretched uh, by this inflation that we're seeing, whether it's grocery prices, petrol prices, uh, whether it's pressure on supply chains and labour shortages, all of these issues are coming together at once. A man has been taken into custody by Chicago police in relation to a shooting at a 4th of July parade that killed six people and left two dozen injured. Police say a rifle was recovered from the crime scene. It is the latest in a series of mass shootings across the United States and comes a little more than a week after a bipartisan gun control bill was signed into law. The man has been arrested, but no charges have yet been laid. To sport, the Socceroos have announced a second Trans-Tasman match as part of their World Cup preparations with Graham Arnold's team to host New Zealand in Brisbane in September. The clash with the All-Whites will come three days before Australia travels to Auckland for a rematch. It's the first time the Socceroos have played a game in Brisbane since a 1-1 draw with South Korea in the first home game of Arnold's tenure back in November 2018. National Radio News, produced by Charles Sturt University, the Community Radio Network, and supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. That's You're us. listening to News from the Drug Warfront, brought to you by Karma and the Connection, here on People Powered Radio 2XFM. 98.3. Time for another song. This is Feeder. Yeah, that's a lesson learned, isn't it? Yep. Drinking yourself to sleep. We just see that as a lesson learned today. Yeah. We were just and talking about nurse that. Pills to keep you sane. Yeah, indeed. That was Feeder with Insomnia. Indeed, it was. The next uh, article is still uh, from and about Australia, called Australia ranks the highest among 20 countries for meth use, which I guess is probably not a surprise, and I'm probably pro rata, of course. This is by Patrick Martin and Josephine Lim from ABC News on the 30th, 30th of the 6th this year. Australia has topped the list of methamphetamine, methamphetamine users among more than 20 countries. A wastewater analysis has found this bloody wastewater analysis drives me crazy. The Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission's ACIC latest report found that in December 2021, methamphetamine consumption in Australia was the highest per capita when compared with nations in Europe, Asia and Oceania. And for the first time since 2017, the use of methamphetamine, cocaine and MDMA in Australian capital cities outstripped regional areas. Perth is among the new meth capital of Australia, while regional New South Wales has the most meth use among rural Australians. Illicit stimulants are showing early signs of increase post-pandemic. 
but not yet to the levels recorded pre-COVID-19. Don't quite get what they mean about post-pandemic. Has it, has it kind of finished? <laughs> well, yeah, it's strange, mm, isn't it? Yeah. It hasn't finished because mm, we had 1,100 last night at, in at the ACT alone. It yeah. isn't. Yeah, you're quite right. But I guess it's as a, that means now as opposed to before COVID, I guess. Mm, yeah, I guess so. But I don't think they should call it post-pandemic. You're quite yeah. right. Maybe post-lockdown or... Yeah, yeah, maybe that would be the better phrase. The National Wastewater Drug Monitoring compares samples taken around Australia between tw- December 2021 and February this year. ACIC Chief Executive Michael Phelan said this period is a time when COVID-19 restrictions were relaxed or removed in most Australian states, which is what I think they meant. Mr Phelan said, quote, organised crime groups have redoubled their efforts to supply the major illicit drug market markets as COVID-19 restrictions eased, generating significant illicit revenue but they continue to face challenges, not least from law enforcement agencies. Quote, regular and near real-time wastewater reporting enables the ACIC and our partners to detect and respond to increasing drug threats in a timely way and monitor the impact of responses, end quote. So Australia ranked the highest in terms of methamphetamine, cocaine and MDMA combined use when compared to other nations such as New Zealand, the United Kingdom, Portugal and South Korea. Samples collected in April 2021 in Australia were used to compare with analysis by the Sewerage Core Group Europe, also known as SCORE, (laughs) (laughs) that gathered results from 86 cities in 27 countries. The Czech Republic ranked second on the list for meth use, while cocaine was most popular in France. Of the 26 countries reporting MDMA consumption, Australia ranked fifth, while for cannabis, Australia ranked sixth out of 16 countries. The SCORE study does not include most Asian nations or the Americas. Now, the ACIC's principal advisor for drugs, Shane Nielsen, said that the Australian illicit drug market was supplied by both international imports and domestic manufacturing. He said when COVID-19 restrictions eased in December last year, the market was still in a stage where illicit drugs were being resupplied. Now, he says, it was logical that capital city consumption, where the product was imported, was higher than regional, where they had to transfer from cities out to regional areas. He explained that the opening of international borders had a significant role in the increased consumption of illicit drugs, saying the movement restrictions and also restrictions on association and the closure of entertainment venues undoubtedly had a downward effect on consumption. As these restrictions were gradually relaxed, and this was the case in most jurisdictions during the review period, the consumption of drugs increased, particularly with stimulants. Mr Nielsen reported that cannabis, which is largely produced domestically, did not see much of a drop in use during the pandemic and would likely remain steady for the rest of the year. Mm, While alcohol and nicotine remain the most commonly used substances in Australia, methylamphetamine was the most popular illicit drug here. Mr Nielsen went on... Quote, what we found was the most of the markets that were predominantly supplied by imports reduced during the COVID period. 
It hasn't finished. The exception is... The exception there is the methylamphetamine market. Now, it reduced considerably, but what also happened was it's still significantly higher. It was still significantly higher in terms of consumption than most other illicit drugs. So it is evidently a very resilient market that poses a wicked problem across Australia. Despite the growing cost of living pressures, Mr Nielsen said that if given the chance, given the choice, sorry, people would still choose to take illicit drugs over paying for household needs. He's quoted as saying, I think that's quite a sad situation that underlies the harms that are posed by the consumption of these illicit drugs, he said. Mr Nelson said Perth traditionally has high levels of methylamphetamine use per capita, despite tight COVID restrictions there for the past two years. He said the issue there is the population in Perth is less than the eastern seaboard capital cities. The level of consumption is actually higher in terms of weight on the eastern seaboard, but per capita, that's why Perth is high. Okay, mm, well, that yeah. explained that not mm. at all to me. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think what he's trying to say is that um, although they use more in Sydney than they do in Perth, because Sydney's twice the size of Perth, um, yeah, per capita, I think he's right? explaining what per capita means. Yeah. <laughs> Mr Nielsen said regional New South Wales has the highest per capita consumption because they're part of key drug supply routes. What we will expect in the next four to eight months would be a return to more normal levels of consumption, whatever that is, mm. particularly in the methylamphetamine market. He said, yeah. I really am over this wastewater. I just mm. don't think it is um, a seem, universally applicable. Yeah, they measure. seem to hang uh a lot of assumptions off it. Yep. Um, wastewater analysis. Yeah, and um, and it, the the assumptions are, I think it's a real stretch. Yeah. To say that because it's present in the water in, you know, volumes, yeah. mm-hmm. that that means a lot of people are using it. Yeah. They might weigh a lot more. Do you yeah. Know what or I mean? it may simply be that someone who is running a home meth lab. Um, got a tainted batch and flushed the whole lot down the toilet or something. Indeed, yeah, indeed. Mean, and that, in yeah. fact, that's a great reason for mm. why there should there might be more yeah. in the, in I mean, the they, wastewater. I mean, they may have very good reason to hang a lot of assumptions yeah. on um, on wastewater analysis. I, d- I, I don't argue with mm. the outcome, just yeah. the process, the method mm. of getting there. I just think that because we've got the infrastructure... Yeah. You know, if we didn't have sewage, mm. like many of the South Af- American countries or the Asian countries, yeah. if there was no infrastructure, mm-hmm. they wouldn't be able to measure it, yeah? They might yeah. have to measure the rivers or mm. something like that because yeah. that's where people are piddling. Mm. Because we've got the infrastructure, they can use that. But I suspect that their outcomes, the outcomes of their research, doesn't necessarily reflect the the strategies, the way that they're um, testing, what they're mm-hmm. testing. I just don't think it all adds up. Yeah. I think it's a useful way to look at it, but I don't think it's a truthful way of representing yeah. what's actually happening on the ground. Mm. Yeah. Too many, too many leaps, yeah, mm. too many conceptual leaps. Yeah. There's lots in the water. Therefore, 
lots more people are using it. And mm. I, no. Yeah. It might be lots of people. One person using wacko or, as you yeah. say, someone flushing it down the toilet. Mm. Yeah? Yeah. So to avoid being – or a lousy batch. Yeah. You just don't know. And yeah. I think that their assumptions are dodgy. Mm. Yeah, spurious, yeah. I think, is the word, isn't yeah. it, Dave? Yeah. Spurious. spurious, yeah. yeah. Okay, we might um, press on with the next story before going to a song. Uh, this is from Myanmar. Half a billion dollars worth of drugs going up in smoke. This is from Gavin Butler in Vice News on the 29th of June, 2022. And I take it they don't mean things that are meant to be smoked. Mm. Mm. Well, probably a lot of it is. Yeah. <laughs> The sky over some of Myanmar's biggest cities turned black last Sunday with the smoke of more than $643 million worth of incinerated drugs and precursor chemicals. The narcotics, which included bulk quantities of heroin, cannabis, methamphetamine, ecstasy and ketamine, were stacked in gigantic piles and ceremonially destroyed as part of the International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking. In other major cities throughout the region and the world at large, local drug authorities were putting the torch to their own stashes of illicit substances seized over the previous 12 months. Yes, it is very ceremonial, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, celebrating how effective they are in um, curtailing the world's drug markets. <laughs> the International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking, a UN international day that seeks, seeks to raise awareness around the illicit drug trade, has been observed annually every June the 26th since 1989. For years, narcotics police have highlighted the occasion by pouring out, setting fire to or driving steamrollers over huge stockpiles of seized illicit substances to send a message to traffickers and to signal that the authorities are winning the war on drugs. It's a yearly ritual that, however visceral, rarely translates into anything more than a dramatic PR exercise. Absolutely. But this year was significant for East and Southeast Asian authorities in light of the way in which drug trends in the region have shifted over the past year. Production and trafficking of illegal synthetic substances hit record levels in 2021, with authorities collectively seizing nearly 172 tonnes of methamphetamine and more than a billion meth tablets, or yaba. Mm. The amount of seized yaba pills is seven times higher than it was ten years ago. While the 79 tonnes of crystal meth seized in the region in 2021 was approximately eight times that which was seized a decade ago, according to a recent report from the United Nations of Drugs and Crime, UNODC. Meanwhile, the price of meth in both tablet and crystal form has continued to drop throughout the region, indicating... <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> indicating that supply remains high and even historic seizures are doing little to stymie the flow. While authorities may be celebrating the unprecedented volume of drugs that they managed to confiscate over the past 12 months, as an armed narco police posed for photo ops next to flaming mountains of drugs on Sunday, experts have flagged concerns that it's all just a drop in the bucket. 
Jeremy Douglas, Southeast Asia Reasonable Representative for UNODC, told Vice World News just days after Lao authorities celebrated the biggest single drug bust in Australia's history, it's very likely the drug market is significantly underestimated in East and Southeast Asia. And there's a huge problem, given the region is home to somewhere in the range of 2.3 billion people. Quote, governments in Asia often, down, often downplay or do not try to measure use, given it's un, un, you know, uncomfortable to discuss. And if levels are even half what they are in the West, it forces a rethink of global estimates and strategies. Douglas added, the, su- the supply surge we have been witnessing is going, some- is going somewhere. It's being taken up and used in the region. Mm. I have to uh, say that maybe since they had the biggest, uh, they might have got the biggest amount of confiscated drugs in a partic- in Laos history. Yeah. Because I remember, and I know I'm old, but I remember in 1972 there was a whacking great lump of heroin or morphine, actually, that was found in the Bay of Thailand, Bay of Siam, mm-hmm. um, that was due for the Indonesian market. Yeah. And I don't know what it would be worth now, but it would be, I reckon it would probably be a hell of a lot bigger than what they picked up mm. in Laos. Yeah. But I just, so I think there may be that when they talk about history, I think they're just using sensational, mm. you know, yeah. at, they're just applying sensationalist words to yeah. it and saying, you know, good on the Lao police mm. or the yeah. UNODC or whatever. And the simple reason they're making the biggest busts at the moment is because there's more drugs out there. Absolutely. And it's probably somewhat easier as well right now because there's, um, well, certainly last year there were fewer ships out in the ocean. That's right. Fewer container vessels and such like and well, yes, and not few, fewer people able to go out doing fishing trips. Fewer, yep. fewer ships allowed into foreign ports. Lots mm. of countries were closed. Certainly, yep. Australia was, and yep. probably a lot of other countries too. Yeah, so the and the ships were more tightly quarantined, and they were yep. much easier to search. I suspect. Mm-hmm. Okay, time for a song. Uh, this song is called "Up Broken Mirrors." Uh, this is "Rise Against." That was Rise Against with Broken Mirrors. Uh, you're listening to news from the drug war front with Dave and Marion here on People Powered Radio, 2XXFM 98.3. Uh, we're going to South America now. The war on drugs prolonged Colombia's decades-long civil war, according to a landmark report. This comes from Joe Parkin Daniels in the UK Guardian on the 29th of June 2022. The punitive prohibitionist war on drugs helped prolong Colombia's disastrous civil war, the country's truth commission has found in a landmark report which was published on Tuesday as part of an effort to heal the raw wounds left by the conflict. The report, titled... There is a future, if there is truth, was the first instalment of a study put together by the Commission that was formed as part of the historic 2016 peace deal with the 
rebels of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the delightfully named FARC. Mm. That deal formally ended five decades of civil war that killed more than 260,000 people and forced seven million from their homes. Other leftist rebel groups, state-aligned paramilitaries and Colombia's security forces all contributed to the bloodshed with atrocities committed on all sides. The violence has affected all sectors of Colombian society, from political and business elites to rural peasant farmers, with drug money funding insurgents, paramilitaries and corrupt politicians. The poorest farmers has often been forced, either economically or at the barrel of a gun, to grow coca, the base ingredient of cocaine. But the report found that, quote, The union of the interests of the United States and Colombia led to the construction of Plan Colombia, which was a huge multi-billion dollar military aid program that began in 2000, which merged together the counterinsurgency, anti-terrorist and anti-narcotics programs with the war against narco-terrorism. The report found that a substantial change in drug policy should be implemented and that a transition to the regulation of drug markets should follow, while also placing some of the blame with the US, who funded Colombia's armed forces during the war. Hmm. Francisco Deru, the Truth Commission's president, said at a ceremony in the Colombian capital, Bogota, we cannot postpone, as we did after millions of victims, the day when peace is a duty and a mandatory right, as expressed in our constitution. Yeah. The report called for major changes to Colombia's military and police forces, which have received more than $8 billion from the US over the past two decades. It said the military's objectives should be re-evaluated and all human rights violations committed by security forces should be tried by civilian courts instead of falling under the military justice system, which is quite accurate. Like many victims of the conflict, Angela Maria Escobar celebrated the launch of the report as a chance for Colombia to heal after decades of bitter war. Escobar survived sexual violence at the hands of members of the United Self-Defence Forces of Colombia, or AUC, AUK, a now defunct right-wing paramilitary organisation. Ms Escobar, who now runs an organisation for female victims of the conflict, said, quote, it's vital that all Colombians and the whole world truly understands what happened during the conflict which affected so many families and so much of society. And this is one of the things that we always have to remember, that the major victims of most wars, uh, because men tend to run the wars, it's the women who get raped. Mm. The report also made policy recommendations which could be picked up by the incoming administration of the President-elect Gustavo Petro including reforming the armed forces, the creation of a ministry for reconciliation and the protection of human rights defenders from political violence. Petro, the first leftist ever elected head of the state in Colombia, will take office on the 7th of August. He was a guerrilla fighter with the M19 militia in his youth and is a firm supporter of the peace process with the FARC. 
The left-wing firebrand attended the launch ceremony of the Truth Commission report in Bogota on Tuesday morning, along with his vice president-elect, Francia Marquez, who's one of the many Colombians who were forced to flee their homes during the conflict. She will be the first black woman to fill the post. Outgoing president Ivan Duque is a, a Duque was a sceptic of the deal who has been accused of slow walking its implementation to undermine it was in Portugal for the United Nations United Nations Ocean Conference. Mm. Yeah, not present. Yeah. We've got we know what that's like, don't we? Yeah. Be absent. Yeah. Well, good for Colombia, I reckon. Good yeah. on them. It's a time all that stuff came to light. It was stuff that we all knew. Yeah. It's like that anecdotal stuff. We all knew it, but because it hadn't been researched, it wasn't counted as capital K knowledge. Yeah, and, well, I think we're seeing it right throughout South America at the moment. Is, um A lot of... Well, there's a lot of these governments that have been supported there by the US for 30 yep. or 40 years. Yeah. They're corrupt, they're undemocratic. And they maintain instability. They maintain instability. Yep. And, you know, you've got to expect that there's going to be insurgencies um, when when you're essentially down-tread people. Yeah, when you're denying people their human rights, murdering Mm. 260,000 people and displacing 3 million. Yeah. People have got to say, that's enough. Mm. Yeah, turn around, fight back. And just stop playing people off against each other, mm. which is what they were doing. It yeah. was actually stimulating arguments mm. between like-minded groups to make sure that they didn't collaborate. Yeah. And that's what's happened in Colombia. Those like-minded groups have collaborated. Yeah. And we can just hope that they become a formidable government yeah. and capable of actually running the country without the corruption that has been mm. so rife for so many years yeah. and take note of Brazil and mm. don't don't and learn from the experience of Brazil if you yeah. like mm. um, just making sure that not only do they have their truth and reconciliation commission but they make sure that their authorities and their public servants and their uh, military yeah. are paid appropriately mm. so that they don't have to rely on corruption yeah. and funds from the US government to undermine the current government mm. yeah, of Colombia. Yeah. Okay, so another we're song? going to another song. Yeah. Uh, this is Lord with Tennis Court. That was Lord with Tennis Court. You're listening to News from the Drug Warfront, brought to you by Karma and the Connection here on People Powered Radio. Yeah, we were just talking in the break, by the way, about um, the change in Colombia and and, uh, how much difference that would make and how, I Mm. mean, I personally am hoping that the... That the uh, Colombian government, the new, the incoming Colombian government, yeah. um, is successful because for so many years, the um, the efforts of particularly the U.S. government, but uh, certainly the right wing mm. um, government in charge of Colombia, has been to make sure that the that FARC and the um, rebel militias, if you like, 
don't talk to each other or if they do, they don't trust each other. Yeah. And mm. it's, a, um, it's a horrible thing to think that 260,000 people have been dead, have mm. been killed. That, but the importance about the Reconciliation Commission and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is that people believe in the process mm. and that the outcomes and the recommendations are acted on. Yes. And particularly the First Nations, yeah, the new other than the sort of the incoming Spanish yeah. or Portuguese government Portuguese sailors that are really kinda of couple of hundred years old mm. actually are pushed to one side and that the First Nations or the initial inhabitants are yeah. actually seen to be uh, an operational part of the government mm. and having a black woman as yeah. a vice president is mm. a really good start to yeah. that, yeah. Mm. To have some respect for people of colour yeah. is really important. Mm. And particularly for First Nations people. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and I just wonder to what extent the lack of respect, and I'm just related in terms of what I was talking to you about, that guy in Akron, Ohio, Jeff, mm. Dave, that 60 bullets, you know, yep. was chased by coppers, was unarmed, mm. and 60 bullet holes he had in him when he was taken to hospital by the ambos. Yeah. Couldn't cover and, you know, it up. you know, if they're firing guns like that, it's a miracle that they didn't shoot anyone else. Absolutely. You know, bystanders or something like that. Look, Not that it would have made any difference. Yeah, really, I suspect you know, he was running across a park. And, yeah. But, uh, yeah, they're, they, uh, they, they're trained to go for central body mass. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe there weren't any other black people around that they could shoot at. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, you mm. know, I'm so, that sounds cynical, but it just yeah. mm. worries me that... They don't get to change governments. So now in Brazil, they're sort of not taking any notice of the um, of the indigenous population in particular. No. That it's actually the Spanish that are. Then they look at the, uh, if you like, the people of colour mm -hmm. um, are still seen as people of colour. Yeah. As other. Mm. Yeah. So it needs to spread throughout South America. Is all mm -hmm. I'm saying. So, going to North America, the California Assembly passes bill allowing safe drug use sites. This is from Maria Dinzio in the Courthouse News Service on the 30th of June 2022. After ardent debate, a majority of California lawmakers paved the way on Thursday for major cities to try and stem the tide of fatal overdoses on their streets by opening safe consumption sites where people can inject illicit drugs under medical supervision. Federal law makes it illegal to run such places, but the Senate Bill 57 allows San Francisco, Oakland and Los Angeles to try out a six-year pilot program where they can operate sites that offer sterile hypodermic needles and syringes, as well as the staff who are trained to prevent and treat overdoses. The bill passed last Thursday 42 votes to 28. Mm. Now, newly elected Assembly member Matt Haney, who is a Democrat from San Francisco, said the cities included in this bill are in the midst of a terrible, horrific, escalating public health epidemic. In the last two years alone, over 1,500 people have died of opioid overdoses in San Francisco. That's nearly twice the number who have died of COVID-19. Many have died in public, on the streets, parks and benches. There's no doubt that this bill will save lives by stopping overdose deaths and keeping people alive. I wondered and when they were going to come to grips with, you know, 
uh, juxtaposing the COVID-19 deaths with the overdose deaths mm. because it, it really is a serious yeah. um, opposition, yeah. I mean, 1,500 in a year is an awful lot. That's for, a lot I mean, of people for one think, city. Yeah, yeah, San Francisco is about the size of Adelaide. It's not a particularly big city. It's, <laughs> it's no, certainly nowhere near as big as Los Angeles. Anyway, Haney said he personally witnessed people die on the street in front of his apartment in the Tenderloin neighbourhood. Mm. The safe consumption sites would also refer drug users to medical care and addiction services, if there are some, I guess. Though the Department of Justice vowed to crack down on cities and countries that offer such sites under President Donald Trump, Legislators said the threat of federal enforcement is unlikely under President Joe Biden. New York also opened a supervised consumption site last year after the feds blocked the opening of Safe House, which would have been the first of such sites in the nation. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported the Justice Department is, quote, re-evaluating, end quote, its stance on supervised injecting sites injection sites. Haney said that while it may be preferable for people to simply not use drugs, it's better that they do it in a safe and clean environment where they can access treatment programs if they're in the throes of addiction and going to use anyway. The program will end in six years and each jurisdiction will have to produce a peer-reviewed study on their results. Overdose prevention programs bring the opioid progress and drug use off our streets and parks and out of people's doorsteps, he said. Assemblymember Richard Bloom, a Democrat from Los Angeles, said he supported SB 57, as well as a similar bill that came up in 2019 that didn't make it through the state Senate. Since then, he said, California has seen a dramatic rise in overdose deaths on the streets in his county. Bloomfield told media, quote, many of these people expire right on the sidewalk. We can talk all day about how we would like people not to use drugs in the first place, of course, but we have a responsibility to reduce the harm that these folks are exposed to. Some opponents in the Assembly decried the law as enabling drug addiction. That's a, a, well-worn, a well-worn phrase. Yeah. Um, Al Muratsuchi, a Democrat from Torrance, said mandated drug treatment and drug courts made more sense, citing then-Governor Jerry Brown's veto message for a, for a similar bill in 2018. Quote, we need not only to not only increase funding for more drug addiction treatment programs so we can get people off their addictions, but we also need to restore the drug courts that were working prior to the reduction of the incentives and penalties that affected mandated treatment. I say let's heed the wisdom reflected in Governor Brown's veto message. And then Democrat <laughs> Carlos Villa. Perdue, Perdue, Perdue from Perdue. Stockton mm. said injection sites are not the answer to the crisis of overdoses, an issue with which he's intimately familiar. My brother died of an overdose. I took him to programs, even an hour away to San, hour away to San Francisco. Nothing helped. He's, <laughs> he's just um. He's torpedoed his, his, own, his own argument. Yeah, he's yeah. torpedoed his own argument Absolutely. There. If yeah. there'd been a safe injection site, he would have been given mm. naloxone and, and wouldn't have overdosed. Yeah, and pouring um, 
more money into treatment programs. If the treatment program didn't help, then, well, yeah. Well, but, yeah, I mean, what didn't help because he didn't want it to help, I suspect, because mm. that's what happens. Anyway, staying with uh, Democrat Carlos of Villa Padua, he said people addicted to drugs need more than a revolving door program. Quote, it's not just about the addiction, it's about when you get out. What ne- what's next? We let them loose. We don't hold their hand. We need to do more of that. We need vocational programs to get them a job. That's the answer. <laughs> Make them work. Yeah, we'll keep them alive first. That's the um, best idea. Assembly member Tasha Berner-Horvath said she had reservations about voting for the bill at first as a mom who thinks having these safe consumption sites actually encourages people to use drugs. But she said it was time to try something new. Quote, The reality is, as my colleague pointed out, that people are using drugs. They're dying from drugs. So if we don't do something different and we don't at least let these cities who want local control to try this out, then we're not doing our job today. The Democrat from San Diego County added that it's not something she wants for her own jurisdiction, but far be it from me to say what San Francisco should and should not do. If you've been on the streets of San Francisco, you see it's very different than what happens in Enchinatus, and I think we should give them a shot. The bill now heads back to the California Senate for a concurrence vote and then to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk. Newsom has not indicated recently whether he would sign the bill and a spokesperson said he does not comment on pending legislation. Mm. Well, I just hope that they don't. Mm. I hope that they just let it go and do the safe injection sites. Mm -hmm. We can't send people to treatment unless they're alive. That's the bottom line. That's absolutely right. So just forget about whether it's an addiction or not. Just treat what's happening right now, and that's the attitude we've always taken on this program, is drug use is a fact. Yeah. Treat the fact, treat the person as a person, and stop treating them as if they are something to be mm. fixed. Yeah. They are a problem to be fixed. Mm. No, 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 no. Overdose is a problem to be fixed. Yeah. People aren't a problem to be fixed. Mm. And, you know, one of the people who said that they need, um, you know, that they need mandated drug treatment and drug courts, forcing people into drug treatment does Doesn't, not work. never works. People do drug treatment because they want to. Yeah. It's the only way they do it successfully. Yeah. And even then that often doesn't work mm. because they still come out and want to have a go. Yeah. And that's often when they die. Mm. is when they have their first shot after they come out of treatment. Yep. Anyway, I was going to suggest we have another song, but we might be best going to this Yeah, we might finish off the stories. Yeah, and, um, do this we'll one from the a... Philippines, so yep. keep people up to date again. Rappler, the Philippines orders shutdown of Maria Ressa's critical news site. This is a real downer for me. Howard Johnson's and Fra- Johnson and Francis Mao from BBC News Manila the 30th of the 6th, 2022. Philippines authorities have again ordered the shutdown of an investigative news site founded by Nobel Peace Prize laureate Maria Ressa. Rappler is one of Philippines' few... is one of the few Philippines' media outlets critical of President Rodrigo Duterte's government. 
Regular listeners of news from the drug war front will know that we often use stories from Rappler as source material, material about the wholesale massacre of alleged drug users and dealers by Duterte's police departments. The regulator's ruling comes out just before Duterte leaves office and is succeeded by his ally, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who won election in May. However, Rappler said it wouldn't be closing and would challenge the order in court. Ms Ressa told reporters last Wednesday, quote, we will continue to work and to do business as usual. We will follow the legal process and continue to stand up for our rights. We will hold the line. Good on you. She said the ruling had come after highly irregular proceedings and that the site couldn't count on rule of law anymore. We're going to say when, you, when you think there was once upon a time when governments were really proud of their citizens having no being Nobel laureates. Yes, Nowadays, abs- most governments seem to hate Nobel laureates, particularly Nobel Peace Especially laureates. Especially Peace Prize ones. Yeah, yeah, there's no government that likes a Nobel Peace laureate because they're well, usually they anti-government. Yeah, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And that's why they're appointed. With good reason. And then, they've got, and then they're rich Mm. Yeah, rich anti-governmental persons because they Mm. get their million dollars to go or whatever it is, equivalent, today's Mm. equivalent of the uh, what goes with the prize. Mm. So they're funded to continue their work, Mm. which irritates the hell out of them. Yeah. The Philippine Securities and Exchange Commission, this article goes on, said in a statement that a decision to revoke the company's licence to operate had been upheld following an appeal because it and the courts had concluded that Rappler's funding model was unconstitutional. The regulator first issued an order against Rappler in 2018, invalidating the news organisation's credentials because, it said, the company had sold control of itself to a foreign entity in breach of foreign ownership restrictions in Philippines media. Rappler has been fighting the ruling ever since. It denies its US investor funding breaks the law. So in 2015, Rappler received funding from the Omidar Omi- yeah. Omi- Network, mm. a philanthropic investment company set up by Pierre Omidar, a billionaire founder of eBay, but denied it ceded foreign control. Three years later, it donated the investment to Filipino staff of Rappler to prove it had no controlling stake in the business. Ms. Ressa said on Wednesday the SEC's ruling was the latest blow in a six-year campaign from authorities in response to Rappler's hard-hitting reporting. Ms. Ressa said, We have been harassed. This is intimidation. These are political tactics and we refuse to succumb to them. Good honour. Human Rights Watch said the spurious move from the SEC was an effort to, quote, shut up Nobel laureate Maria Ressa and shut down Rappler by hook or by crook. Rappler has published extensively on Duterte's deadly war on drugs, as well as taking a critical look at issues of misogyny, human rights violations and corruption. Ms Ressa, who co-founded the site in 2012, faces at least seven criminal and civil cases which she says are politically challenged. She is appealing her conviction in 2020 for libel, a case seen as a test of Philippine press freedom. 
She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize last year, along with Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov, for her journalistic work with Rattler. She was commended for using freedom of expression to, quote, expose abuse of power, use of violence and growing authoritarianism in her native country, the Philippines, end Mm. quote. The order against Rappler comes amid growing concerns about what the new Marcos government will be like. Marcos Jr. is the son of the nation's former dictator who persecuted journalists, human rights activists and political opposition during his decades in power. Activists have already raised concerns about media suppression and free speech. Just this month, Philippines officials advised internet providers to block websites supporting left-wing activists. Journalists critical of the government are also routinely abused in the country. Several whistleblowers' accounts have emerged of troll farms set up to harass and intimidate journalists and political opponents. Reporters Without Borders, or RSF, ranks the Philippines 147 out of 180 countries on its Press Freedom Index, down nine places from 2021. That's mm. not a major surprise. Yeah. Um, we've been reporting, we've been taking things largely from Al Jazeera and from Human Rights Watch yeah. and from Amnesty International, mm-hmm. who've been reporting on the deaths in the Philippines yeah. um, at largely. And I wonder if the libel charge is from Duterte himself, who has come out and said that he used to drive around uh, Davao or Maneo. Davao. Davao, yeah. where he was the um, mayor yeah. on his bike shooting drug users, drug mm. addicts he called yep. them. And, and then when he became president, he paid the um, military and the police yep. a per capita, a pro rata basis mm-hmm. for killing drug addicts. Yep. And that had been reported by many, by the ones I cited, Al Jazeera and, you know, Human Rights Watch and mm-hmm. Amnesty. Um, and Rappler just came on board as an independent yep. Filipino-based outlet mm. and just gave... Um, validity, if you like, to the statements that other journalists were making. Mm. So I wonder if that's where her charge came from. I haven't heard the background to that. But nonetheless, good on her for keeping on going and good on them for keeping on trying because they have really been buggers over there, really mean, um, nasty. uh, Maria Ressa really at the moment runs a serious threat of being arrested on trumped-up criminal charges. Absolutely. And uh, like many a journalist, you know, do not oppose the powerful because Mm. they will put you in jail. Yep. Yeah, because they've got the... They can. Mm. They will because they can. Okay, well, that brings us uh, to the end of another show. It does. Thank you, Dave. It's been great. Um, Nice show. We bustled through. We had some great articles this week. Um, and it's been a real pleasure. Are we yep. due to have Jeffrey back next week? I believe we're due to have Jeffrey back next week. Well, let's so. hope we do. Hello, Jeffrey, come back next week. And thank you, Dave, for filling in. You've been a great, great help. Thank Not God a problem. I couldn't run this thing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, either Jeffrey or myself will be back next week. And I'll week certainly with Marian, be back next week. Um, same time, same place here on. People Powered Radio 98.3.
2XXFM 98.3. So look after yourselves, my darling. We'll see you next week. See ya. Bye.